you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, that's the fourth book there in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And this afternoon we'll be in the first half of John chapter 7. As you turn there, let's remind ourselves of where this chapter falls in the overall structure of the message of the gospel of uh, structure and message of the gospel of John. You'll remember that the main idea of the gospel of John is one of the easiest to find in all of the different books of the Bible. He serves it up to us on a silver platter of sorts in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There's the purpose of the Gospel of John, and yet even without that statement, it would be easy for us to spot the focus of John's Gospel simply by the number of times that he uses the word believe. A quick search of just the ESV English translation reveals that in the 21 chapters of this book, John uses the word believe at least 48 times. And that doesn't factor in parallel words like receive or know. John has clearly written so that we would believe in Jesus. And yet a key question that seems to arise around this purpose statement of the Gospel of John is what exactly does it mean to believe? We've continued to think about this. What does acceptance of Jesus look like? What does it mean to know Jesus? And on the other hand, what does it mean to reject him? What does unbelief look like? Because we find people throughout Jesus' ministry who meet him, talk to him, are healed by him, witness his power, and yet remain clueless about his true identity and never find the life that he offers. Over and over in our study of John, we have found that this disconnect between seeing and believing arises because of the difference between earthly thinking and heavenly thinking. Between seeing Jesus with physical eyes and beholding him with spiritual eyes. Between hearing his words with earthly ears and hearing his words with spiritual ears. We've seen that with Nicodemus in chapter 3, with the woman at the well in chapter 4, with the man who was healed at the pool of Bethesda in chapter 5, and most recently with this crowd who had been miraculously fed by Jesus who then only wanted to use him as a free lunch ticket. If we are honest with our own hearts, we can see ourselves in this draw to thinking about belief in Jesus from an earthly perspective rather than a spiritual one of failing to see the deeper satisfaction and life and joy that God is seeking to bring to our souls. Even we, who by God's grace through his spirit have come to see what it means to be born again and that Jesus is the living water to our souls and that he is the only one who can heal our souls and that he is the bread of the life, even we can still find ourselves confused by Jesus and drawn into unbelief because of our focus on what we can see with our physical eyes and what our hearts are naturally drawn to. Therefore, John, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has written these things to us. Why? So that we would believe, but not simply so that we would believe in a moment, but so that our lives would be marked by and always growing in belief, that we would be those who see more and more that what we see with our physical eyes is not as important as what is unseen and what is really true. 
that we would always be moving away from earthly thinking into heavenly thinking. And in John's quest to help us believe in Jesus and find life in his name, John 7 exposes a specific way of unbelief, of earthly thinking that can show up in our lives and even in our church. And rather than follow this path of unbelief, God's word says this to us today. It says, reject. Reject and root out the kind of unbelief that assumes it knows more than it does. Reject and root out the kind of unbelief that assumes it knows more than it does. We talked about presumption a little bit last week, and it's a theme that continues here in John 7 when we assume that we know things about Jesus. I think that to be teachable is a truly wonderful thing. I think about things that I want to instill in my children, and one of them is that they would be teachable people. We've all met people whose default response to anything we say is, yeah, I know. You ever say that? When someone tells you something, you just kind of are very dismissive, yeah, I already know that. There's a pride in us that thinks maturity is found in knowing things more than learning things. We imagine that certainty in all things is better than curiosity about everything. But it would seem that in life in general, and in faith in particular, a humble and a teachable spirit that seeks with discernment to always be learning is one that marks the true child of God. In fact, if we come to Jesus and we say, yeah, I know, (laughs) or something like, I know better than you do, then we're revealing a heart of unbelief. And that's the kind of heart we need to reject. Reject and root out the kind of unbelief that assumes it knows more than it does. With that in mind, look with me at John 7, verses 1 through 30. John chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you. But it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God 
or whether I am speaking on my, of my, own, on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. This passage begins, as often, with John sort of setting the table. Uh, and it begins with these words, after these things, which most naturally points to chapter 6 and the fact that many of Jesus' disciples, you remember, had walked away from him after the hard teaching about having to eat his flesh and drink his blood that we looked at last week. Uh, the timing of this feast that we're going to see and the feast of Passover that was happening during the, the miracle of the, the feeding of, of the 5,000 means that this sort of mass exodus of disciples happened about six months before what we read in this passage. Uh, and it would seem that Jesus, in response to that, had done nothing to sort of regain uh, a larger following this waning popularity of Jesus, it seems to be on the brother's, on his brother's mind here in the first part of chapter seven. Uh, we also need to remember the events of chapter five. They play into this chapter. That's where Jesus healed the man at the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. That was the last time that Jesus had been in Jerusalem. And you remember the reason that that was the last time that he'd been there was because that healing had happened on the Sabbath day and it had sparked the anger of the Jewish, Jewish religious leaders such that they began plotting to kill Jesus. And so it's the residual anger from that visit that is in Jesus' mind as he speaks to his brothers. And it is that event that is also on the minds of the Jewish leaders when Jesus shows up at the feast. That's why he remained in Galilee, it's why he did not go into Judea, and it's why the Jews are seeking to kill him. All of that is rooted in what happened in John chapter 5. But there's a feast coming, the Feast of Booths. It's said by many people that this was the most popular of the three uh, key Jewish feasts, and we might understand why when we think about it. It was a harvest festival. We all love harvest festivals, don't we? Uh, it, it was a harvest festival that lasted seven days, and it was marked by joy and celebration. 
Um, and a, a celebration particularly for God's faithfulness and provision for his people. Um, it had in view the present harvest, but it was also one that looked to the past uh, and also looked to the future. Regarding the past, it was a time where they remembered God's provision for the children of Israel during the wilderness wanderings. Some of the themes of this feast were, were water and light. Uh, that re- they recalled the, the water that came out of the rock, you remember, while they were in the wilderness. Uh, the light remembered the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that provided guidance for the people. And they tangibly, tangibly remembered all of this, all of this history by building actual booths, little tabernacles out of sticks and branches, and then they would live in these tents during the seven-day festival. So it's a community campout for the people of Israel. You can just see them. Some of them would be in the countryside. They'd be outside their homes. If they were in the city, it would be up on the roof of their houses, and they would live in these booths for the whole week. So the feast looked to that past, but it also looked to the future. It looked to the promise of the pouring out of the Spirit on God's people when the Messiah would arrive. Uh, The Feast of Booths is the setting for chapter 7, but it's also the setting for chapters 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10 all the way through verse 21. So we're going to be at the Feast of Booths for a while, and we'll be thinking about these themes of light and water and the pouring out of the Spirit for a a number of weeks here. Um, But for now, what we find is that Jesus' brothers see this festal gathering this time where everyone's coming to Jerusalem and they say, Jesus, this is the perfect time. This is when you should get out of Galilee, go back to Jerusalem so that you can perform more miracles in the sight of your disciples and build your following back up. Let's get this back to that. Let's get the numbers back to what they were before you told people to eat your flesh and drink your blood and they all walked away. Verse four tells us their rationale behind this. It says, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. But John tells us the deeper reason that they were saying this in verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. The brothers of Jesus help us see what an unbelief that assumes it knows more than it does looks like. We find here that when we fall prey to this kind of unbelief, we show that First of all, we don't understand God's ways. An unbelief that assumes it knows more than it does, first of all, does this. We, it shows that we don't understand God's ways. At first glance, there seems to be a disconnect between verses 4 and 5, I think. Why, why would Jesus' brothers tell him to openly do his miracles if they don't believe in him? It sounds like they want to advance Jesus' mission but we're instead told that they don't actually have faith in Jesus. And I think the key word to unlocking an answer to this question could be that word openly. It's there in verse 4. It shows up again in verse 13, yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. We see it again in verse 26, and here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. And it's the same idea Uh, The same idea is found in verse 10, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, not openly, but in private. Here's what I think is going on. Jesus' brothers want him to go to the feast. How? Openly. Publicly. Showing himself to the world. 
but not because they believe in him. That's clear in verse five. That's not their motivation. So why? I think for themselves. They want to be the brothers of Jesus, the miracle worker. They're motivated not by a desire for God to be glorified and for the good news of the kingdom to be proclaimed, but rather a desire for self-exaltation. And in this way, they're no different from the crowd that sought Jesus so that they could get another free meal. Their focus was on what they could get from Jesus, specifically that they might somehow receive some sort of praises for themselves. The crowd in chapter six wanted food. What do the brothers want? They want glory. Isn't this the spirit of our age? It's probably the spirit of any age because it's the spirit of the human heart. It's summed up in verses three and four. The words of the brothers are the words of this world. They're the words of our flesh. This is what they say. Make sure everyone sees what you do. Seek to be known openly. Show yourself to the world. Did those messages sound familiar? We can begin to buy into that idea. We can begin to think that if we don't post it somewhere for other people to see, then what was the point of doing it? (laughs) We have an invisible audience in our minds throughout life, and we want some kind of recognition for everything that we do. But the scary thing about this passage is that this attitude is seen to not simply be misguided. Jesus seems to show us that it's a, it's a sign of unbelief. The desire to be seen by others and praised in the world is so antithetical to the mission and the spirit of Jesus that it's a sign we don't understand him at all. Jesus tells his brothers that They can have this. They they can have this worldly longing for personal praise. Why? Because they're part of the world. But Jesus helps us to see why this desire for praise is so opposed to his true mission. Why is it opposed? Well, first, we see that a desire for the praise of others keeps us from being honest about sin. If we desire praise from others, it will keep us from being honest about sin. He says to his brothers, listen, your time is always now because you are focused on saying and doing what people want to gain praise for yourself. What if his brothers had been in the, uh, with him when the crowd showed up in John 6 looking for more food? You want to think they would have said, hey, Jesus, perfect opportunity. Give them some more food. But what does Jesus do? Jesus confronts their sin and unbelief. Jesus doesn't do the thing that would draw more people to him. Instead, he says the thing that causes many of his followers to turn away. Why? Because he's interested in true faith, not false followers. I was listening to Sinclair Ferguson this week, and he made this statement. He said, it's a strange thing to find in the Gospels that Jesus often brings out the worst in people. (laughs) Very interesting to think about that, but why? because he wants to see true faith, not false followers. And if our desire is for crowds or acclaim or recognition or followers on social media or otherwise, then we will not be honest about sin. And we'll not be honest about, and to not be honest about sin 
is unloving. Remember that lying about sin is the way of Satan, not Jesus. For Jesus to keep healing and keep feeding and, then, and never say to the crowd, repent and believe. If that's what Jesus did, if he just fed everyone and he healed everyone, but he never said to them, repent and believe, he would seal their fate in hell. It would not be loving, but his concern is not with the praises of others. Therefore, Jesus can be brutally honest about sin and about unbelief. What about us? Do we love the praises of others so much that we've fallen into the unloving act of not being honest with others about sin? Not being honest about our own sin? Of not calling our friends and neighbors and family to repent and to believe? Of not loving our brothers and sisters in Christ enough to graciously confront them and seek to restore them? If so, we may have fallen into the unbelief that loves the praises of others more than the praises of God. This kind of unbelief says that it keeps us from being honest about sin. If we desire the praise of others, it also keeps us from being willing to die. Keeps us from being willing to die. Jesus' brothers tell him to go to the feast, but Jesus says, no, I'm not going to the feast. And then Jesus goes to the feast. So did Jesus lie to his brothers? No. No, because I think the point here is that Jesus didn't go in the way that they wanted him to go. How did they want him to go? Openly and publicly. And when Jesus goes, it was as he desired to, which was in private, according to verse 10. And he did that because why? His hour had not yet come. We remember the repetition of Jesus talking about his hour having not come, or of John letting us know that Jesus' hour had not yet come. It's a beautiful theme in John's gospel. He says it first to Mary at the wedding of Cana. It bookends our passage today in verses 8 and verse 30, and it shows up throughout the gospel all the way until John 12, 23, when Jesus says the hour has come. And what is the hour? He says it's the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. Glorified. That's what the brothers want, isn't it? They want the exaltation of Jesus. So maybe the issue is they're just too early. They, they just needed to wait. They, they pushed Jesus towards showing himself to the world too quickly. But timing is not the problem, is it? The problem is that they completely misunderstood what it meant for Jesus to exalt himself. Jesus will make it clear that the kind of exalt, exaltation he was speaking of was nothing like what his brothers desired of him because he was going to show himself to the world how? by dying. The most open display of his life was going to be when he hung naked on a cross. The work that everyone would see was when he was humiliated and killed as a criminal, taking the place of sinners like you and me. And that's the path he calls us to if we believe in him. A path that we don't naturally naturally understand because our sinful hearts don't understand God's ways. He calls us to Reject the kind of unbelief that seeks the praises of men and women more than the praises of God and to instead follow him by denying ourselves, by taking up our cross and walking after him. Our desire must not be our own exaltation or our own acclaim. It must always be the glory of God alone. And God is glorified as we willingly lay down our lives for the good of others. 
God is glorified in our church, not as more people know who we are or what we do, but as the gospel goes forward more clearly in our community and our world, and as the glory of God fills the earth more and more, even if no one ever knows the name Grace Fellowship Church. Our task, in the words attributed to a guy named Nicholas Ludwig Count von Zinzendorf, it's nice sometimes when you have a quote with someone that has a short name, but that's the guy who said this. <laughs> this was his quote. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That's our task. As individuals and as a church, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. I'm reminded this week I was listening to someone saying that um, the purpose of crucifixion was to snuff someone out and that if Jesus had not resurrected, we'd have no idea who he was because that was the point of crucifixion. It was to erase someone from history. And yet Jesus is exalted above all. But our job is to be forgotten so that Jesus might be glorified. Well, Jesus' brothers may have been misguided here, but church history tells us that later on they understood, don't, didn't they? James, the brother of Jesus and the early leader of the church in Jerusalem, was martyred for believing in Jesus and for following after him. And by God's grace, James was able to understand God's ways, the, the way of loving the glory of God more than the praises of God of others. And by God's grace, he also helps us to reject the unbelief that misunderstands God's will and that instead is honest about sin and willing to lay down our lives for our Savior. Well, Jesus arrives at the feast. We hear the attitudes as he arrives of the Jewish leaders and of the people in general in verses 11 and 12. The leaders just want to know where he is. They assume he's going to show up at the feast. They want to keep tabs on him. They want to see what, he say, see what he does and hear what he says. But even more sinisterly, they're seeking him. Why? Because they are ready to kill him. They would like to kill him in order to stop him and his teaching. The crowd is divided. Some people claim he was a good man. Not a very strong statement about him, but it's at least positive. They say he was a good man, while others decided he was leading the people astray, but nobody, we're told, spoke openly about him. In the previous chapter, the crowd began to grumble. Here, what are they doing? They are muttering. <laughs> and the muttering and the lack of open confession of Jesus serves as evidence that neither the Jewish leaders nor the crowd believed in him. The scriptures testify that unashamed, open confession of Jesus as Savior and Lord is an evidence of true belief, such as why baptism is the first step of obedience for a new Christian and an evidence of true belief. Baptism is not required for salvation, but such a public proclamation of faith in Christ reveals the genuineness of our understanding of and belief in Christ. It's an outward testimony and an expression, not only of the work of forgiveness that God has done in our hearts, but of the fact that we're ready to openly confess him before others. Apart from the muttering and the lack of open confession, the testimony of Jesus in this passage reveals the unbelief of the people, but not just theirs, it reveals our own sin of unbelief. So we discover, secondly, that this unbelief of assumption, it, it shows itself up in, in this, that we don't do God's will. We don't do God's will. 
Jesus makes this point as the crowd reacts to his teaching in the temple, particularly the fact that Jesus was teaching with obvious wisdom and knowledge, but he had never been officially trained in any of the rabbinical schools. He hadn't gone to the right seminary. He hadn't gone to any seminary, and they didn't like that. Well, Jesus knows their thoughts, and he lets them know that while he was not taught in their schools, he was taught by someone else. (laughs) He was taught by his father. He did not speak of his own accord or with his own words or in his own wisdom, but he taught what the Father in heaven had revealed to him. And he says that if their desire is to do God's will, then they would understand that his teaching was from God. If they want to do God's will, then they will understand that his teaching is from God. And therefore, since they don't see that he is from God, they don't want to do God's will. So what's the question? The question is, what is God's will? And the answer comes back to that desire for praises of people that we've already seen. It's found in verse 18. The one who speaks of his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. What is God's will? It's the spread and the increase of his own glory, which means that the one who seeks the glory of God above all else is the one who is doing God's will. In contrast, the Jewish leaders are upset at Jesus. Why? In large part because he's undermining their authority. It's that first part of verse 18. The one who speaks of his own authority seeks his own glory. That's the Jewish leaders. Jesus had not gone to their schools He wasn't teaching in their ways, and therefore he was causing people to move away from them, and therefore he's stealing their glory, and they get mad. We may not see ourselves in them right away, but like them, we don't naturally do God's will. Namely, we don't seek God's glory on our own. Naturally, we seek our own glory. We want others to sing our praises. We want people to honor our name. We want people to pat us on the back. We want people to like us. But a desire for our glory is opposed to the will of God. And if we are following Jesus, then we will find him calling us into deeper and deeper belief, a kind of belief that desires God's will. And what is God's will? It is God's glory. That's what we want more than anything else. Well, the fact that we don't do God's will also means that third, we don't keep God's law. More evidence of unbelief in our lives is that naturally, in and of ourselves, we don't keep God's law. Jesus introduces this idea in verse 19 when he says that the crowd doesn't keep the law of Moses like they think they do because they want to break one of the Ten Commandments, specifically the one that says, you shall not murder. Jesus knows that they want to murder him, and so he calls them out on it. He says, you guys are breaking Moses' law because you want to kill me. In in response, the Jewish leaders break another one of the Ten Commandments, and they lie. (laughs) They say, no, we don't, which they did. Jesus goes on to tell them what they already knew, namely that because he had healed a man on the Sabbath, and in their minds he had broken the Sabbath, they want to kill him. I think we see a couple things about them and about us when we sin. First, Jesus shows them that that they and we along with them when we sin, it, we are illogical. This, this, we are illogical in our sinning. He reveals that they want to break the law 
against murder because he supposedly broke the law by healing someone on the Sabbath. That's some wild logic when you think about it, you know? You broke this law, so we're going to break this law, and that's better. But this is human wisdom. This is human pride. Sin is not logical or rational, and our pride leads us away from the ways that God has revealed in nature and in this world. This is Romans 1. Spells it, it, it's Roman, what, Romans 1 spells out what is in this passage. It tells us in Romans 1 that we naturally suppress God's truth. We claim to be wise, but show that we are in fact fools trapped in a kind of adult idolatry that worships our own desires. And when we get trapped in that kind of idolatry, God says he gives us up. He gives us up to our illogical and self-destructive sinful tendencies. Paul talks about he, that God gives us up to lust and impurity that goes against love and purity. He gives us up to things like homosexuality, which goes against the laws of nature and of, of God's law. He speaks of giving us up to unrighteousness in all of its forms. Paul says there in Romans 1 what Jesus says here, which is the fact that we don't keep God's law. And to not keep God's law is illogical. Sin brings death, not life. But still, we think that by sinning, we will find life. Sin brings pain, not joy. But we think that by sinning, we will find joy. Every form of rebellion against God's good law leads us away from the true life that Jesus is offering. That is why sin is so illogical. But it's not only illogical, we're not only illogical, but we're so inconsistent. We are inconsistent in the laws that we do keep. Jesus tries to help them see that if, if he broke the Sabbath, then, then so do they, they when they circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Why, why would they say that it's acceptable that, that that's acceptable. It's acceptable to circumcise a man on the Sabbath, but healing a man completely is not. Why is it right to cut a person's body to bring them into the blessing of God's covenant, but it's wrong to heal a person's body so that they can experience all of the goodness that, that God offers? I think Jesus is showing the danger of religious hypocrisy, which is a danger that we all face. It often shows up in the legalism that we're all prone to, meaning the ways that we make secondary issues or applications primary ones. When we focus on our preferences or our personal convictions instead of on the call to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourselves. But ultimately, the hypocrisy comes when we imagine that we have the ability to keep God's law on our own. The Pharisees not only assumed that they knew God's law better, than Jesus, but they also assumed that they were keeping it more consistently than Jesus. Can you imagine? They thought they knew the law better, but not only that, they thought they were keeping it better than Jesus. And so their prideful assumptions reveal their unbelief. Well, if we don't understand God's ways, and we don't do his will, and we don't keep his law, then it finally reveals that we don't know him. We don't know God. That's what comes out in verses 25 to, to 30. We don't know God. After saying all this, we find in verses 25 to 27 that the crowd goes back to their favorite ob objection to the deity of Jesus. What is it? We know where this guy's from. <laughs> they keep bringing up the same things over and over again. Their assumption about his origins causes them again to continue in unbelief. And so Jesus says to them, in a sense, fine. Let's pretend you actually know where I'm from. What you don't know is why I came 
and you don't know the one who sent me. He said that, that as they continued in their prideful assumptions about him, they revealed that they did not understand why he came or why the Father had sent him. They were completely clueless about it. But rather than repent of all this unbelief, they sought all the more to arrest him and to kill him. But we find it was not time. No one could lay a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. His hour would come. He would lay down his life, but not yet. As we look at this crowd that's trapped hopelessly in, in unbelief, it can become almost frustrating. But you wonder, if they're trapped in this unbelief, are, are we also trapped? Is, is there a way out of unbelief? Is there a way to not go down this path? It's naturally where we will go. Apart from Jesus, we are trapped in unbelief. But Jesus has come to be who we are not and who we never could be so that he could make us who he created us to be. Jesus has come in opposition to everything that our unbelief is. So Jesus has come as the one who understands God's ways, who was in control of his hour and lived his life with the cross before him. He's the one who does God's will. Why? Because he's always seeking God's glory above all things, and he pursues it even to his own death. Jesus is the one who keeps God's law in a way that we never could and who offers us his righteousness through faith. And Jesus is the one who knows God. In our unbelief, we don't know God, but Jesus does. And as we repent of our misunderstanding and our glory-seeking, of our illogical and inconsistent rebellion against him and his law, he forgives us and he gives us his righteousness. And he introduces us to, to his father, not as slaves of his father, but as sons and daughters. And as we live in him, we live for his purposes. We live according to his will. We live in obedience to his word, and we do it all for his glory. This is the kind of belief that he's calling us into. He's calling us out of this. He's calling us to reject and root out the kind of unbelief that assumes we know more than we do about who he is and about what belief is. And he calls us into a kind of humility that finds our hope in Jesus and that then seeks the glory of God above all else. Let's take a moment of silence and we'll reflect on God's word and then I will pray for us. Father, we confess that apart from you, we are lost. We are trapped in darkness, and yet we think we know the way. <laughs> we think we know how to get out. We think we understand more than we do. And Lord, even for we who have come to you by, by faith, there is the temptation to fall back into the to our illogical sin, to our inconsistent keeping of your law, thinking that that's going to make us right before you. We seek our own pride. We seek our own glory instead of yours. 
but teach us what true belief looks like. Thank you that Christ has done everything that we could not on our own. And we give all glory to him and ask all this in his name. Amen.